Well, you've all probably heard the idea of the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. If you've watched any Christian movies or read the Left Behind series or watched some movies back in the day with the Antichrist lying in the hospital bed with a fatal wound and all of a sudden, he returns to life. That's always my sound for a lot of different things. I don't even know why, but anyway. And uh, we've gotten some ideas in our heads about, you know, what this should look like. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard uh, people who are sharing stories about microchips and, uh, you know, things that they could put under your skin. They, I think they started with pets, some company maybe even out of San Diego. And then the idea was that, uh, you know, perhaps uh, there will be a microchip and the microchip will be the mark of the beast. And that would be interesting if you had to buy or sell with a microchip on your forehead because they'd have to scan your forehead and that would be kind of interesting. But anyway... But we know it's no laughing matter. We know that the Bible paints a picture of a dark time for humanity. And the question is, what is this all about? How do we make sense of this, this beast? And there's actually two beasts in Revelation 13. How do we make sense of this mark that is talked about? What is it? Uh, what should we be looking for? How should we understand such things? I will say this to you at the outset, that we have to keep in mind that the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. And much of what is communicated is communicated in symbolism. It doesn't mean that parts of the book are not literal, but part of the interpretive challenge for the book is to try to understand what is literal and what is figurative, what is literal and what is symbolic. Apocalyptic literature by nature in the genre of the writings uses kind of extreme signals to communicate truths. And that's a little bit of what we'll wrestle with tonight as we look at this message called The Mark of the Beast. Who is the beast? What is his mark? In Matthew 24, Jesus said these words. This is familiar to many of you. He said, uh, there, will be a great, there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now or nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would, would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. That's Matthew 24, 21 through 24. Um, imagine false signs and wonders that, if possible, it could even mislead the elect, the chosen of God. Um, if you look at Revelation 12 for a second and see the way we ended the dragon in 1217 of Revelation was enraged with the woman. The woman we've identified as the nation of Israel and went off to make, more, make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. We see the dragon who is identified in this chapter as Satan going off to make war with the rest of the offspring of the woman who is Israel and the rest of her offspring is most likely Gentile believers who have been grafted in and are part of the covenant people, if you will. That's what leads into chapter 13 as we look at how the devil is going to attempt to dominate the world. It could be a picture of uh, all of history, or at least the history of the church. It also, uh, many believe, reflects an end-time scenario where the devil is... Um, roaring like a lion and, and persecuting the church. There have been three beasts that we've identified so far. The first beast has been out of the bottomless pit, that's Satan. The second beast will come out of the sea of humanity. He's been identified as, as Antichrist. We'll see that in a moment. The third beast comes out of the earth and is identified as the false prophet. So let's look at Revelation 13.1 with that setting up uh, our teaching tonight. It says, and he, that's the dragon from the end of chapter 12, who was enraged, and he, the dragon, stood on the sand of the seashore. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns, representative of kings or kingdoms, and seven heads, I believe, representative of kingdoms or nations. 
And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now this beast that comes up, uh, the dragon stands, and it's almost like he's beckoning up this beast. And this beast has been identified as the Antichrist. However, you do need to know that the, the word Antichrist is not used anywhere in the Bible except in 1 John. But we do have the idea of the beast. We have a man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. And so their scholars and commentators believe that we're dealing with the same individual, or at least this individual that represents something, or perhaps even a kingdom or a nation. But the dragon stands, and it's like he beckons up his first tool for taking out his wrath on the rest of the woman's offspring. His tool will be this beast. And this beast is weird looking. It comes up out of the sea. Some would say the sea of humanity. Some believe this represents the Mediterranean. We'll talk about that in a second. The beast has 10 horns and seven heads. Now we looked at the dragon in the last chapter and talked about the frightening imagery that's you know painted there. And now we have this weird looking beast horns and and multiple heads, 10 and 7. But notice there are diadems or crowns on his heads and there are blasphemous names. Um, The word for beast here denotes a wild beast, a vicious beast, a killing animal is the idea. Something that is vicious, something that is bloodthirsty. And there are many who see that the dragon Satan is calling up his seed his antichrist by which he can do his shenanigans. And one thing that you need to know about the enemy from the beginning is he always is parroting the work of God. He counterfeits the work of God. He masquerades as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11. He will uh, dupe many people with false words, false promises. This has been his work from the beginning, questioning the word of God. Did God really say this? Did God really say that? John 8, 44, Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. He does not abode in the truth. When he speaks, he speaks nothing but lies because he's a liar. John 8, 44, and he is the father of lies. The enemy is in the deceiving business. And one of the things that we're going to see tonight is that when the beast comes and the false prophet comes, they're going to come in ways that can be appealing to people uh, to bring maybe power and even peace to individual lives. But ultimately, this beast is blasphemous. Notice there are blasphemous names that are connected to him. If you think of blasphemy, blasphemy is one of the things that we are warned over and over in the Bible not to do. We're not to blaspheme the name of God. In one sense, blasphemy means to vilify God. It means to demote God. It means not to treat his name with holiness. And so this character, this beast, is blasphemous. We get a little bit more descriptions of, uh, here in verse 2 about the beast. The beast which I saw was like, when you see the word like, it's a simile. So it's something that John is using to describe characteristics of this beast. Uh, He was like a leopard. A leopard is fast. His feet were like those of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, that is Satan, gave him his power, number one. His throne, number two. And great authority, number three. So you might say, well, okay, this beast has a lot of elements to it. It seems rather strange. If John was an artist, how would he draw this beast? Well, we get some clues from Daniel 7 about what this is all about. So that's why I asked you to hold a place in Daniel chapter 7. Let's go there. Daniel is kind of the Old Testament book of Revelation. Lots of prophecies about the end times. And you're going to see similarities in Daniel 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. Daniel said, Daniel 7 verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Many believe that's the Mediterranean right there. And four beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Daniel 7 verse 4. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. 
I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. The lion, if you've ever studied this before, is a symbol of Babylon. And behold, another beast, verse 5, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. The bear symbolized here is the Medo-Persian Empire. After this, I kept looking, verse 6, and behold, another one like a leopard, a symbol of the Grecian Empire, with great swiftness, Alexander the Great conquered the known world. I think he uh, laid in his bed at the age of something like 28, or I think it was something like 28, and cried that there were no more nations to conquer. With great rapidness, he dominated the known world. Like a leopard, notice, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. His kingdom was ultimately divided into four parts under four generals, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. Many would associate this beast with Rome. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had how many? Ten horns. You just might write in your Bible, same as Revelation 13. While I was contemplating the horns, and you can imagine Daniel had to do a lot of contemplation, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, the horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, you can see kingdoms that historically were involved in the nation of Israel. You have Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, the Medo-Persian Empire, the famous ruler there is Cyrus. You have the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. And you have the Roman Empire that dominated the world and was dominant during the time of Jesus and during the time of John. Several emperors were leaders of that nation, kind of figureheads of the nation, if you will. And one of the most famous ones was literally called the Beast. His name was Nero, Caesar Nero committed suicide in 68 AD and actually was known as the beast for many terrible things that he did, including things he did to Christians. And by the way, he murdered his own mother. He was a terrible man doing terrible things and he was known as the beast. There are commentators that date the book of Revelation before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and believe that the beast in Revelation is Nero. And in fact, there's a process where you take the Hebrew, uh, and I think Latin and Greek work this way as well, and each alphabet, each letter of the alphabet has a numeric equivalent or a number equivalent. If you take the name Caesar Nero in Hebrew, it equals 666. And so there are people who believe that Nero is the beast of Revelation, But that would require that the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD. I don't think it was. But here's what we can say. We can say Nero, in some ways, typifies this last day's ruler, who will be a dreadful ruler, a vicious ruler, and so he would have these characteristics. If you look at Daniel 7, skipping down to verse 17, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. And then if you go down to verse 24, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will rise after them. After, and he will be different from the uh, previous ones and will subdue three kings. This is some confusing language, but there'll be more to come in Revelation 17. He will speak out against the most high and will wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Everybody remember that? what that is? Three and a half years, right? But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, 
and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Praise God. <laughs> Amen. You're part of that kingdom, so that's good news. So you might be asking, well, the connection, if you go back to Revelation 13, between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 is what, Pastor Michael? Well, I think John's pen has indicated that we need to look at Daniel 7 to get an idea of what may be the picture being painted. And it's probably something like this. The beast of Revelation 13 is a composite of these world-dominant empires from the time of, really, Daniel to the time of Jesus. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Rome was the dominant empire at the time of Jesus and the time of, of John. And the beast of Revelation 13 seems to be a composite of all these world empires. Some people, in fact, believe that Revelation 13's beast is not a literal person, but a political entity or a kingdom. But remember that these kingdoms of the ancient world, like Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece, had a figurehead. They had a Caesar or a leader or a king that was ultimately behind their power. And so a lot of different interpretations here, but typological precursors is the technical term that you could see from Daniel 7 to this person. In Daniel 10, uh, we won't go there for the sake of time tonight, we do see that demonic powers are often behind worldly kingdoms. For example, in Daniel 10, 13, an angel says to Daniel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me. So we do know that we have strongholds or dark powers uh, that are influencing government. In fact, there were people who watched Adolf Hitler give speeches and believed that he was demonically possessed. And he was able to hold crowds and that kind of thing and influence a whole nation. And then it did come out that he was dabbling with the occult or maybe full-fledged into the occult. So the devil does use world powers to persecute the woman. Egypt, Babylon, Medo-Persia, just think of it. Herod the Great killing the babies in uh, Bethlehem and on through the ages. So we cannot separate the demonic powers or influences from what happens in the world and in government. And so he says, I saw in Revelation 13, 3, one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now this fatal wound that was uh, a mortal wound and was healed and brought amazement has brought some of the caricatures that you've seen in some of the movies and books. That this Antichrist, and there's some that refer here, and you can just write this down for your consideration to Zechariah 11:17, and believe that there's some sort of assassination attempt on this world leader of the future. In fact, when JFK was killed, there were... Uh, prophecy buffs at the time saying JFK was the Antichrist and he was going to return from the dead, that he had a mortal wound and he was going to rise from the dead again. He was going to be healed of it. And there's been all these different speculations on assassination attempts and comebacks from them. In fact, there are some people that have intimated that they think that Adolf Hitler will return in some fashion and uh, lead a, a revived German empire. And you've heard about revived Roman empires. And maybe Caesar Nero will come back from the dead. These are all the speculations. Or there's others that say this is a future world leader. And he is literally assassinated. He gets a fatal wound and dies and rises again. Remember I told you that the devil is a master parator of the work of God. What do you think he might be trying to counterfeit? The dying Messiah and the rising Messiah, to bring people in awe after this seed of Satan, if you will. Remember, Jesus in Mark 13, 6 said, in the last days, many will come in my name, saying, literally, I am. They will come, apparently, in the name of Jesus. Counterfeits are at their best when they use our terminology. Have you noticed? So we have people who stand up there with Bibles. They name the name of Jesus, but that doesn't mean that they represent Jesus. And we need to know that this is how the enemy works. Um, you know, deception and so forth is most effective when it has a lot of truth stuffed with a big fat lie. 
some, we've had some discussions lately and people say, you know, people are asking questions like, well, you know, when you have a teacher that is known to have had some false doctrine and have some issues, but they say a lot of good things. Well, yeah, th- that, that's what makes them maybe even more effective. And it doesn't mean that people don't make mistakes who are speakers and Christian teachers, but if someone holds on to a heretical false position, there's an old saying, a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> false teachers can say some good things, but it, they, they can say some things that could benefit your life, but they could still be categorized as a false teacher. And this is often how the enemy works. In the early church, this was true, and it's still true today. Now, remember, if the, uh, we take the heads and everything literal, we have to understand that this beast in verse 1 of chapter 13 had how many heads? He has seven heads. So if one of the heads gets a fatal wound, doesn't he still have six left? If you still have six good heads left, are, is the beast really dead or is it only one of his heads? And then what does that mean? So you can see why you have to be careful with your interpretations in taking this to maybe mean that it's just an individual. Is it just one kingdom of seven or one king that makes a comeback? We don't know. But you will see how the language seems to revolve around an individual. Notice what happens. The world's in awe of the beast in chapter 13, uh, verse uh, 3. They're amazed. They follow after the beast. And they worship the dragon, verse 4, that's Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? The world is amazed at this, whatever this miraculous recovery is, and they start to have a mantra that they sing to the beast, if you will, or speak of the beast, and they say, Who is like him? In Exodus 15, 11, the children of Israel said of God, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Who is like you, O Lord? To whom shall you compare me? To whom shall you liken me, says the Most High God? Do you see what Satan's trying to do? The people are saying, Who is like the beast? Because Satan has wanted worship from the beginning, right? From the time of his fall. He even asked Jesus to bow down and worship him in the temptations in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And so now the world is in awe of this beast. You might say, well, how how does the world so easily become in awe of what they should be able to see through? Well, should they be able to see through it? And what does it really take for the world to be in awe of somebody? Think about it. What does it really take? Boy, they're such a wonderful singer. Oh, right? Do you see people, how they go goo goo gaga, nutty nut over movie stars? Do you remember the, the old film footage of the Beatles with young girls screaming and passing out on the front row? She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. We have a, we've kind of taken that song and I don't even remember how the song goes, but we've made a parody of the song now and it goes like this. It's on the golf course. With a swing like that, you know you should be sad. <laughs> anyway. Now there was given to him, verse five. See if you can recover from that. This is a divine passive, by the way. It's a reminder that God is ultimately sovereign or in control. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for how long? 42 months. That's what? Three and a half years. Was given to him. Again, given to him. God is ultimately in control. This is where some of the scripture where people say he's a great and confident orator, the Antichrist. He has a mouth. He's arrogant, but he's blasphemous. Jesus said, you will know someone by how they talk because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you have someone who claims to be a great spiritual or political leader, 
but out of their mouth comes arrogant blasphemy, you have a pretty good idea of where they're coming from. The sovereign God will establish the limits, 42 months. He gives him the ability to do this uh, work for a time. And he even opened his mouth in blasphemies, verse 6, against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, probably speaks of his people, that is those who dwell in heaven. He speaks blasphemy against God and against God's people. This has been the history of the persecution of the church, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against his people. Today, Christians are marginalized in many countries of the world. In our own country, Christians are mocked and made fun of and marginalized and painted into corners uh, for their views and so forth. And this blasphemy continues. There's, this is going to begin with a verbal assault, but it's going to turn physical, verse 7. And it was given to him, John reminding us again that God is sovereign, to make war with the saints and to what? And to overcome them. And authority over, this is a worldwide situation. It can't be just limited to the fall of Jerusalem over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was what? Given to him. Now, this is what makes all God's people say gulp. He was given to make war with the saints, and the saints is a common term for the church, and to overcome them. To overcome is a Greek word called nikao, and it's where we get the idea of Nike or the Nike brand, and it's the sign of victory. He's given victory over the saints of God. Now, you might say, why? What purpose would God have to allow this beastly, whoever this is, to, to wear away at his saints, to harass them? The idea here to, um, it was given to him to overcome them, and authority was given to him. He, in Daniel 7.25, the same idea of wearing them down, Daniel 7.25, means to harass constantly and to wear them out. There's some that have looked at this and said, in the last days, this may not be like an all-out assault, but it may be a wearing down of the saints to where they, they get beaten on so much that they, they just can't, you know, they can't overcome. And so uh, it's a harassment, a continual harassment, some being killed and so forth. And all who dwell on the earth, verse 8, will worship him. Everyone whose name, is, whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Would you notice in verse 8, it says, All the inhabitants of the world, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Everyone on the earth except those whose names are written in what? The book of life, which presupposes that Believers will be here during this time and will refuse to worship the beast and refuse to take his mark. But the whole world outside of those written in the Lamb's book of life will worship this beast. And all I could write in my notes there is sad. Very sad. The ultimate of being duped, of uh, buying the lie, of giving in to deception. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. I believe that the Apostle Paul is ta talking of the same circumstances here in 2 Thessalonians 2. And he says these words. He's referring to the day of the Lord. And he's talking about some things that have to happen for this time to come, which I believe includes the second coming, the resurrection, and the rapture. So here's 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now we request... You, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. I believe you have the second coming and the rapture there. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.2. That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come, the day of the Lord will not come unless... The apostasy comes first. Now, the word apostasy is apostasia in Greek, and it means a defection from a previously professed position. It means to defect. 
So you say you're something and you defect from that position. That's apostasy. It comes first. And the man of lawlessness is what? Is revealed. The son of destruction. We were in a New Testament survey class last night. A little bit of dialogue back and forth. And it would seem that the apostasy is connected to the man of lawlessness and what he does. In other words, people who said they were Christians will defect during this time because of the pressure of staying true to Jesus Christ. And in every age where there's been persecution of the church, and by the way, it's happened in just about every age. I don't know if you know how fortunate you are to live in the United States right now and in this era of the United States. Persecution for the Christian church has been the norm. We live in a country right now founded on Christian principles, uh, which are slowly ebbing away, that has given us great privilege and comfort for a season. I pray that it lasts. But I'm telling you right now, this has not been the story of the church for 2,000 years. The church has normally and regularly been persecuted. So here's what it says. It says, The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearing of his coming or appearance of his coming. That is the one, this Antichrist or man of lawlessness, who's coming in accordance, in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now we can see the parallels to Revelation 13 here as this one is doing this work. Revelation 13, uh, the first section ends with these words, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Let me just park here for a second. We're, we're gonna move on, but let me just say that oftentimes... The Bible just pauses for you to do a little bit of healthy contemplation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Are you playing church? Are you saved? I think the purpose of this pause is to just have us consider where we are with the Lord. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes, verse 10. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. The idea of restitution, justice. Here is the perseverance or patient endurance and the faith of the saints. NIV, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Gonna have to hang in there because this is going to be a time that needs patient endurance and course, there's been many seasons when the church has had to do this. And I saw another beast, Revelation 13, 11, coming up out of the earth. The first one was from the sea, the second one from the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. He looks harmless, but he spoke as a dragon. The idea probably of power and craftiness. He looks like a lamb. He speaks like a dragon. In Revelation 5, we saw a lamb as if slain, right? And that lamb was representative of who? Jesus Christ. This lamb is the false prophet. And we learn that from other uh, verses later on in the book. He's kind of the religious arm of this antichrist who seems to be political. And so he arises from the earth here and he looks harmless. In fact, there are some that believe that he tries to convince the world that he is Jesus that he's the Messiah, that he's the lamb, that it's okay to give your allegiance to this political leader. Look, I'm telling you, this is who I am. And look at what's happened to him. 
He, he had a mortal wound, a fatal wound, and, and he's okay. And you guys have been worshiping him anyway. And notice something else. He exercises, verse 12, all the authority of the first beast or the Antichrist in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. This so-called false prophet, religious leader, is pointing the world to worship the Antichrist or the beast. And the world is right with him. And, you know, the world has had a lot of false prophets. There were false prophets of Baal back in the day. Jesus said there will be false Christs and false prophets. They've, they've been all over the Bible for a long time. There were many false prophets prophesying falsely to the kings of Israel, saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. It's nothing new to have false prophets, to people, use, people using the name of God, saying they speak for God. But notice something else about this second beast in 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. We had a Bible study studying some of these subjects. And one of the guys at the study who's up on eschatology said, Pastor Michael, I've never seen you call fire down from heaven. And I told him I've tried a few times, but it's not working. But anyway, just a joke. But here's the thing. Can you imagine, and I don't know how literally to take this, but can you imagine if someone could perform such a sign as this, how people could easily be swayed? Who could call fire down from heaven? In the Old Testament, it was Elijah. And in Revelation 11, it was one of the two witnesses. And some people believe the two witnesses represents the church. Others of us have said perhaps it's Moses and Elijah or Enoch and Elijah. Whoever it is, the devil is parroting the work of God again, almost like in the book of Exodus when the Egyptian magicians parroted the work that Moses did. Was it sleight of hand? Was it what they call prestidigitation, that you're just fooling somebody? Or was it a real demonic miracle? Can the enemy do false signs and wonders? I'd say so. I'm sure he's limited. He can't do what God can do, but he can do some things to impress people, it would appear. And this false prophet, this sidekick of this other beast, is doing some incredible things that you know, would convince probably everybody unless they knew to test these things in a way that we know. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24, 24. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 13 for a second. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 13. This is a verse just to keep in mind in light of what's being talked about. Deuteronomy 13, Moses writing says these words, verse one. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, Deuteronomy 13, one. I'll slow down for a second, but we gotta move quickly. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, gives you a sign or a wonder, Deuteronomy 13, two, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses said to the children of Israel, if you have a guy who does a sign or a wonder or a token and it comes to pass, but his message is to follow other gods besides me, don't do it. The sign is not the ultimate test of his validity. His words are what he tells you to do, to worship, to act upon, to believe. Ultimately, back to Revelation 13, we do not measure one by how he dresses, if he holds a Bible, if he sounds good, if he's a good speaker, we test by the word of God. If someone sounds good, but they start telling us things that are against scripture, against the gospel, against the Bible, don't follow them. I don't care how slick or popular they may be. 
Everybody hearing what I'm saying? This is the message. And he, Revelation 13, 14, this false prophet deceives the whole, those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image, the word there is icon to the beast, who had the wound of the sword, some sort of military defeat perhaps, and has come to life. The false prophet, verse 14, tells the world to make an image, an icon of the beast. What is this image? I simply don't know. I don't know what the image is. There's all kinds of conjecture of what it could be, everything from amulets to individual statues. We do know that the Caesars back in the day when Rome was conquering much of the known world would plant a huge statue of the Caesar at a major port or somewhere where it was visible even to uh, ships that were coming into the area to tell you who you had to pay allegiance to. By the way, first century Christians uh, refused to burn incense to the Caesar like on his birthday and so forth and were killed for it. They were fed to the lions because they would not pay obeisance or bow down to the imperial cult, which is another way of saying Caesar worship. So whatever this is, it is something similar to that. And an image is made some sort of idolatry or idol, which is a no-no for Christians, of course, and Jews. And here's where it gets even more weird. There was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, not to the beast himself, but to the image, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, if you ask me, Pastor Michael, what is the interpretation of that? All I can say is I have no clue. I just don't know. Now, I have heard that in the ancient world when the imperial cult was happening, sometimes there would be pagan priests who would do some sort of ventriloquism behind these statues or idols, throw their voice to make it sound like it was speaking or an oracle was being given by the statue. Is that what's going on? Could it be that modern technology in some way will play a part in this so that it will appear that life has come into an image? Could cell phones or robots or something like that have a part? I don't know. But God is the one that breathes life into man. And again, this is the enemy trying to parrot the work of God. Whatever this means, it's, it's weird. Uh, there's, there's death if you don't bow down to the image. Is it just symbolic? It may well be. But Dr. Gundry says these words. We need to interpret this passage in the light of the culture of John's day. In order to control the diverse peoples and nations of their vast Roman Empire and to promote some degree of unification, the Romans erected statues of and temples to the Caesar or emperor in the cities of the lands that they conquered. These conquered peoples were then demanded to worship those statues. It was a method of showing loyalty to their captors. Certain historical records report that some priests in pagan temples did this ventriloquism trick in order to cause people to believe that there was some life or whatever. And he, verse 16, causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now, this is the famous mark of the beast. What is the mark? Is it a microchip? Is it a actual visible thing that you could look at? Well, whatever it is, it is a counterfeit of God's mark. Everybody remember in chapter 7? God sealed who? The 144,000. The seal, just flip back so you can see this, Revelation 7, look at verse 3. Where was the seal put on them? Revelation 7, verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on what? Their forehead. Everybody go to Revelation 14, look at verse 1. I looked, and behold, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written where? On their foreheads. Now, everybody listen to this really quick. This is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 8 and 9. 
You shall bind them, the teaching of the Torah, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, 8, and 9 tells the Jewish people, they literalized this by making phylacteries, which hung from their arms and came down to their forehead, literally little scripture boxes, take, taking this in an over-literal way, but I don't think that, that was the message to the Jews. When you're with your kids and grandkids, when you walk by the way, teach them the principles of scripture. Let them be on your hand, whatever you do with your work. Let them be in the frontals of your forehead. Let your mind dwell on these things. May I submit to you, the mark may be more a message like this. Who do you belong to? What captivates the work of your hands, the thoughts of your mind? Whose mark do you carry? God's or Satan's? Is it a literal mark? where it's a microchip or something like that. Well, I don't think we've made the mark in Revelation 7 and 14 literal. So maybe the mark is more symbolic of ownership. Could I say to you tonight that that's probably the application that you and I need to wrestle with? Is who do you belong to? Which king and kingdom do you serve? To where or to whom do you show allegiance When it's all said and done, if persecution comes to your city or town, will you bow or will you stand? Don't you see that the deeper question being wrestled with is who do you belong to? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? The father of lights or the world? What system, what Pied Piper do you follow? Have you answered that question? Have you answered that question for yourself no matter what comes your way? Whatever your health may be, whatever your bank account might say, whatever the world may be, whatever percentage of Christians live in your town or live in this country, will you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? It's interesting. Back in the day, slaves in Rome actually were marked on their foreheads or their hands. Runaway slaves actually were marked with a CF Cave furum, it meant beware of thief. It marked them as a fugitive. Uh, It was put in a place where you normally wouldn't cover it with clothing on your forehead or on your hand to mark you. And a slave was marked with a brand to depict ownership. So again, I would say whatever you make of this mark, the deeper message has to do with ownership. Whom do you serve? Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't do it. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Do you know, I I was doing a little study on this and I heard that a papal bull was issued. And you say, what? A A papal bull was a pronouncement from the Pope uh, throughout the history of the church. And you could and you can talk about Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and Wycliffe and the Reformation under Luther. But what I understand is papal bulls sometimes went out, proclamations from the Roman Catholic Church to do harm in some way to Christians. And in some cases, apparently, you can do your own research on this, to keep professing Christians from buying or selling. In other words, it worked this way. Oh, you're a Christian? I'm not doing business with you. Oh, you're one of those? I'm not doing business with you. You can't buy something from me, and I ain't selling to you. Everybody with me? It had to do with your identity, who you belong to. In some countries of the world, if you identify as a Christian, they will not do business with you. They will not have anything to do with you. So again, um, obviously there's some practical stuff here, but there's also a deeper message of belonging. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, I know as we close this message that a lot of people freak out. They get a phone number or a license plate number or 
there's a date on the calendar, 666, or I bought something that was $6.66. So they buy some chewing gum to throw that off, right? Now it's $7.42. Oh, I feel better. And we get all weird. Look, there's, there's been all kinds of speculation on 666. In the end, six is the number of man. Tripling the number may speak of just the, the fact that this one represents man, and man falls short of God, short of perfection. And if you follow this kingdom or this man, you're going to fall short too. That could be the message. But there are others who have done numeric equivalents and others who have said there will be a, a literal number this way, and I'll let you just wrestle with that. First um, John says, children, it is the last hour, verse 18. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many, many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Tell you what, flip over to First John. It's just a few pages back. First John, pastor promises this is the last scripture of the night. So Shane, if you're ready, you can come up. Verse uh, 19 of chapter two of First John. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they, are, they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, 1 John 2.21, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Father, we are grateful to be yours because you've sent your Son. He who has the Son has the Father. But if we deny the Son, we've also denied the Father. There are many people who think, oh, I can believe in God, some undefined God, and I'm fine. But Jesus, you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no one who's coming to the Father except through me. And if we have the Son, we have this life, and we thank you that we do have that life if we're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian tonight, may I just exhort you to run to Jesus, run to the truth. Uh, he, is, he is the embodiment of truth, and he will keep you from the father of lies and from his deception. He will... Be your bridge to the kingdom. He washes away sin. He sets the sinner free. He'll give you a new heart and a new start. If you've been a prodigal and you've been running from him, run back to him. And just say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I believe in your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. I want to follow you. Make me your child. Make me a son or a daughter that is loyal that shows allegiance, and when I fail, and I will, thank you for your grace and your mercy in my life. Lord God, I, I pray a blessing over your people, that you meet their every spiritual, physical, emotional need, take care of their uh, provisions that they need, protect them from the evil one, and let us be busy about your kingdom in light of eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand?